Hi, everybody. It's Jean Nathan. This is Crosstown Conversations with news about New Orleans that counts about our economy, our environment, our culture, and some occasional politics. Thank you for joining and enjoy the show. Excited, truly. I mean, I say this with all my guests, but I am so excited to be talking with Walter Hickey, who has a newsletter called Numlock. Is that the right pronunciation? Numlock will do, but yeah, now you got it. (laughs) Yeah. Who has done a book called You Are What You Watch. I am particularly and personally interested in the subject of this book because a few years ago, and I can't remember if I mentioned this to you, I was attending this this enormous anti-Vietnam rally in Washington. And I got out of a cab and my raincoat was caught in the door of the cab. Cab is taking off and I'm being dragged down the street. And so I'm screaming. Oh my God. To try to catch the cab driver's attention. He's not hearing me. And there's a guy standing there watching this. And, and you know, finally the cabbie hears me and I, my life is saved. But I thought about it like immediately and ever since then about how that guy was attuned to watching, not doing. So the passivity of the practice of of, of watching. Anyway, Walter, um, let's start with the book because uh, I don't want to miss a minute. And um, tell me um, why you did this, the subject matter, and give me an idea of what your key points are. Yeah, uh, the book came from a lot of the research I was doing just as a pop culture writer. I would talk to people who worked in movies. I would talk to people who were scientists. I would talk to people who, who, uh, you know, just readers who responded to an article. And time and time again, I would find that people would just say like, oh, yeah, no, this movie changed my life. Or like, oh, this movie, I'm, I'm doing this job because I saw this in a movie and I thought it was great. Or perhaps they're like, they had seen somebody of their gender or their race in a movie in a role that they had not necessarily thought was for them. And as a result thought, you know, I could be a doctor. I've seen Grey's Anatomy. There's so much in film and television that allows you to feel empathy for other people and allows you to put yourself in the shoes of another person and potentially to understand their world and and the world that they're living just as it just as much as it is an opportunity to show salacious content uh but i would say that like the things that i kept on finding time and time again were that you know there's an enormous amount of power in media that there's an enormous amount of power in television and in movies and i think that in general people tend to kind of handle that power a little flippantly that they think it's not necessarily the uh the the they're like it's just time being wasted or it's just brains being melted where this is stuff that your body engages with it you you have a, a full body reaction to content that you see and watch uh and your brain takes it as seriously as things that happen in the real world and so to that end i i basically you know went on a big lit review i talked to a whole bunch of scientists and researchers and economists and 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 people who study this kind of stuff and uh and the book is called you are what you watch um 
it, we find constant examples in ways big and small that the world is affected by movies. It can be uh, 101 Dalmatians leading to the Dalmatian becoming the eighth most popular dog in America pretty much overnight. Like it's all sorts of different ramifications of this kind of stuff. And, and uh, the book kind of just catalogs all of them. So um, give me a few of the examples that uh, really captured your imagination that, that spoke to you in terms of either your own experience with, with what you've watched and its impact on you, or just how, uh, as you say, as fundamental as it can be, how strong the impact can be. I mean, like right now, a uh, perfect oh, yeah. example is going on right this minute where we, you know, we, we thought it was really horrible what we heard happened in Israel. And then the cameras are all trained on every move in, in, um, uh, in Palestine. And, and it's, 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 just riveting and and um it's it's awful in its impact really but it's 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 opening up all kinds of thinking about the world and life and what's going on right now absolutely i mean like to just kind of jump off that angle like geopolitics and film are are very intricately linked uh, it, that has been understood since the very earliest days of film, when the United States was a significant exporter, and the European economies that had, in many ways, innovated the technology of film uh, were ravaged by World War One, and as a result, were not producing quite anywhere near as much to compete with the American exports, and that got people very concerned. Excuse me. Um, and essentially, you know, the history of 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 film and 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 movies and tv and pop culture in general with in geopolitics is 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 huge i mean you'd seen uh during the depression and during world war ii these films being used to motivate uh these films being used to propagandize <clears throat> the medium being used to um kind of bring people into serving in the armed forces and being like oh what a, what a joy it is to get drafted and say and hang with the fellas um and then after the war you can see even like the Pentagon begins to get a little bit involved with like the creation of a film about D-Day, The Longest Day. After they did long history with even they produced they they assisted in the production of the first Academy Award winning film Wings. Uh, and, and to this very day, the Pentagon has a very significant interest in Hollywood in, in, in furnishing uh, weapons and 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 ships and planes to to movies that would glorify them um but in geopolitics I, there's like a number of countries that have rather than try to expand their empires and expand their influence through hard power of of bullets guns ships all that uh they've they've increasingly turned to the idea of soft power of the idea of well let's export our culture and and get people to love us and, and want to uh imitate our values and, and 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 the things that we want and you can see post-war britain doing a huge job of this um you know there's a reason that they knight movie stars now because some of the biggest advocates for the united kingdom are the actors that they send abroad and that we all kind of come to know and love you can see it uh, in places like Japan, which uh, kind of took the British model in the 90s and was just like, well, let's export this the anime that we're producing and the animation that we're producing, uh, whether it's Studio Ghibli and the films of Hayao Miyazaki or even just things like Pokemon. And you can see a significant increase in 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 attention and interest in that country just through, that is you know legally not allowed to have an army. Um, even recently, you've seen that from Korea, like Korea has has kind of seen the Japanese model and, and, and executed it specifically from a state sponsored perspective. And that's led to um, like, you know, things like Best Picture going to Parasite. It's led to things like BTS. It's led to things um, like just uh, Squid Game and, and all these different kinds of television shows that that, you know, make Americans and other people uh, around the world 
enjoy Korea and, and want what Koreans want and understand the perspectives of, of, of Korea. And so, um, I mean, to your, like, I know that's kind of a, <laughs> a bit of a globe spanning answer, but uh, I, I always think that like the power of movies to really transcend borders and, and help people understand and empathize with people in different parts of the world is, is some of their most powerful, powerful things. I have to be honest and say that I'm pretty much a cable news junkie at the moment because I, 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 we're living through incredible history and it's being rolled out in front of our eyes and all these super smart people who are deeply educated in their fields are on these shows and so as a journalist at heart I, I, I just can't not watch uh, these programs. Every once in a while I'll just be I can't take another second of uh, <laughs> Stuff. And so I'll flip to the uh, a network, and every almost every time I do that, I'm going to tune into some violent program, or I just see this kind of trashy uh, programming that is clearly um, dictated by algorithms and and just taking advantage of uh, people's um, lowest common denominator thinking about life. And it, it just drives me nuts. And I just think this is really, really damaging to any kind of effort to help people understand better what life is about. So you're saying, on the one hand, it's generating empathy and understanding. And on the other hand, I'm looking at it and saying, oh, my God. I think so you're getting at a lot of really interesting stuff here. I will give you an example on a personal level, which is like, I am from New York City. I, I live there right now. I live in Queens. It's great. And New York is like a really lovely city. It's got some of the lowest crime rates in the country. Like if you compare it to any major city, New York really is, it's a good town. But there's a perception that New York is uh, crime ridden, is full, is, is, is like, you know, it's not a safe place to be that really could not be more in in contrast with the actual statistics of, of crime uh, you know it's a very safe city all things considered uh particularly like in the hemisphere it's one of the safest and you have to ask yourself why and i think it genuinely comes down to these uh like you know the news is always going to fill in 30 minutes and the media is always going to sensationalize you know violent and sadistic things and in any city in which you have nine million souls some of them are going to be broken and in, in, in a way that that gets them on that news occasionally um, there's also, I like, again, I, I live in New York and, and there's an entire fleet of products called law and order that is all about how much crime there is in New York. And what we know is that if, if you look at the Gallup poll of, we ask people every year, do you think that crime is up where you live? And since the eighties, just straightforwardly, almost every year, for the most part, there are exceptions, almost most of the years. Crime has actually gone down in this country. Uh, that's a result of a number of different factors, but violent crime has been declining fairly consistently with a few exceptions over the past couple of years. However, if you ask Americans, is crime up or down for every single poll, they basically tell you, yeah, crime's up. And so there's a dissonance between what's actually going on and what people perceive. And that perception is so informed by media and is so right. informed by the things that we consume, whether it's nonfiction stuff on the five o'clock news or whether it's uh, it's it's fictional stuff at, at you know, on the uh, 8 p.m. Law and Order SVU. And so there's a lot that goes on there. And like, uh, you know, the, the there isn't a lot of evidence directly tying consumption of violent media to violent acts in the aggregate. Uh, other countries have violent media too. Uh, and even though the United States has a few specific issues, particularly related to gun violence that we don't see in other countries, that it's not, it's difficult to sometimes directly attribute 
those things to the things that we watch and consume. That being said, the the way that we can track uh, we, we do know that when you watch something violent, you, your body gets agitated. And in a laboratory setting, we know that. But what we also know is that there's this idea of, of self-sequestration, where a safe, like, you know, if you're a young man between the ages of 16 and 24, demographically, you are a danger to yourself and others more so than pretty much any other demographic. That's the age at which you have hormones coursing through your veins that are telling you to do complicated things and react violently. And a lot of public health is getting young men between those ages uh, to not to not do something that affects them or someone else. And that's where you get things like midnight basketball. That's things why you get uh, youth groups specifically targeting folks. Because if you can keep people off the street or out of bars or away from alcohol, you can really do a lot to deter them from getting into trouble. Um, and a very interesting thing, a paper by t- these two economists out of, out of uh, California, one's at Stanford, um, the other um briefly forgetting, I believe Berkeley, um, essentially looked at the release patterns of violent films to try to track what the impact of violent films were the night that they're released. Because you would expect, since we know in a laboratory setting, if you show somebody something violent, they'll behave violently. Uh, Instead, what they found was that because violent films had this effect where people were sequestering themselves in a movie theater, which is a very safe place, all things considered, drinking Diet Coke and not whiskey and consuming you know, uh, popcorn and not potentially drugs or something that might get them to trouble. And then just watching a movie for three hours, no matter how violent it may be, that sequestration had a much pop more positive effect nationally than the effect of agitating these people with violence. They drowned out the effect of, of the actual violent content by simply sequestering them in a cinema for three hours. And then by the time that they get out, even if they do hit a bar, they're going to be considerably more sober later in the evening than they would have been had they been drinking for, through those three hours. So there's this idea that when we consume that's media- very, but That's a very short-term context, right? So that's- yeah. Movie theater to to uh, after the movie. I, I mean, I think more, you know, I live in New Orleans where, you know, of course, we're accused of having one of the highest crime rates in the country uh, per capita because mm-hmm. our population has declined um, since uh, even before Katrina, but certainly since Katrina and uh, a couple other hurricanes and, and uh, saltwater wedges in the river and all kinds of stuff that um, creates an impression also about, you know, uh, livability of this city. But I, 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 I tend to think that um, the, the key cause of violence really is lack of opportunity and hope for fulfilling your talents and dreams. I think that the longer term impact still is 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 providing tools just like you're saying uh, people learn things that they can do from watching uh programming so watching um the the solution of using arms and fighting um that's got to have a, a long-term influence it's not like you are not permanently like uh tainted by consuming violent content i think that again, what i'm trying to get across mostly with that is that you know 
every Saturday that you can keep somebody safer, every Saturday that you can keep people from being out on the street being violent, like the scope that this paper looked at, you're looking at 40,000 diverted assaults a year. And that's a, that's a fairly substantial amount of, of people who could have been injured or got into trouble that don't happen because they're in a safe place over the course of, a, of over the course of an evening, you know, like a lifetime is built one day at a time and, and deterring people from doing uh, bad things over the course of it, you know, you can really change your life over the course of one night. And so being able to change the course of one night is, I think, a thing that has a little bit of power. Now, the question that you're really getting at here is like, what's the long term impact of violent exposure on folks? And I, there's a couple kind of mentalities about this. The first is that it is incredibly hard to study this for obvious reasons, which is like you can't like pick 10,000 people and put them in a in, in a in a community that just doesn't show violent content and take another 10,000 people and just show them violent. That's like very unethical to experiment on children in that way. So we don't really know what the long term effect on this kind of stuff is. What we do have like actual insight on is again like once you get somebody on the other side of 24 once you get a young man on the who is older than 24 you're kind of on easy street when it comes to making sure that they're a functioning member of society as far as that goes like it, you they are much less likely to do uh, violent things or behave erratically than they were when they were in the hormonal uh, areas of, of late puberty and as a result you know these things aren't going to cause permanent scars unless you know there's a there's another developmental issue go, going on um to that end though like you know i i think that the media has done a, a like uh it doesn't necessarily understand uh and this is not not like a it's kind of criticizing it in the aggregate is not necessarily the most fair way to do it but i think that you know the the aggregate message that a lot of these shows and movies are kind of sending um it, it it's inconsistent with with our world right like a very good example that i always come to is that there's there's this organization called the annenberg inclusion initiative out of uh, the university of southern california uh it, and they do a very fascinating bit of research every year where they basically count up every uh, speaking character in every, in the top 100 grossing films of the year and they analyze things then then for different dem demographic data and their most reliable finding is that female characters are only 33 percent of all speaking characters so that male characters outnumber female characters in films two to one particularly in jobs where the person's powerful particularly the in, in when they're the protagonist particularly when the person who can kind of change stuff and so if you look at the aggregate message that's being sent across those films you you have a very dim view of what women can accomplish in the world right you see this very similarly when it comes to representation of minorities on film you can see in particular They've done a number of studies uh, about Asian Pacific Islanders. They've done a number of studies about um, Hispanic Americans, a number of studies about Black Americans. And what they found is that, you know, particularly among Hispanic Americans, that they are often represented as um, in gangs, as being foreign, as not being American. And it, it can be, you know, you don't you can talk to any you know Hispanic actor and ask their experience with being typecast and, and the kind of roles that they had to audition for when they were when they were particularly just starting out. And you, you would know this for a fact, but seeing it bear out in the data uh, is always very remarkable and i think that like to your point like you know i think an individual like violent or crass thing you know uh, i'm a very open-minded first amendment kind of guy where i think that you should be able to make the kind of art that you want to make but the message that is being sent pervasively by by hollywood and by by the people who actually have power within the film industry is absolutely worth critique particularly when it comes to how we show 
people who are minorities, who people who are women, people who lack power in our world. Um, and, and the kind of carelessness with which some of these things are cast, I think, can be an actually powerfully and, and pervasive problem with um, with how people are allowed to see themselves in mass media. I'm fascinated by how your respect for the value and um, truth of data affects how you think about things. So tell me about um, Numlock. And yeah. your your regular is it a podcast or or a um, newsletter or both? Certainly. So it's a it's a bit of both. Uh, it's predominantly a newsletter. Uh, the core of Numlock is a daily morning newsletter. Uh, it can be found at numlock.com. And the idea is that I used to work at a site called Five Thirty Eight, and Five Thirty Eight is a data based website. I'm a data journalist. I my experience is mostly from that end of it. And uh, it is a daily morning number basically highlighting fascinating numbers that are in the news. And it just kind of comes from this idea that if you are an avid consumer of news, which it sounds like you absolutely are, you'll oftentimes find that within a story about a larger topic, in like paragraph seven or eight, that's where they include the actual statistic that undergirds the whole piece. And all Numlock really does is I write it every morning and uh, it goes out. It's about seven paragraphs that highlight a really cool number from from an excellently produced story, you know, typically on the topics of science or pop culture or society or lifestyle. I don't really bother with politics. It doesn't really interest me as much. And there's a lot of other people competing in that space. So I, I don't really feel the need uh, to, to uh, get that on my grid every day. But the gist is, uh, you know, to your point, and I love that you pointed this out, is like, you know, whenever you see a number or a statistic in an article, it's encouraging. And, you know, you and I are both journalists and like as a journalist, like we have to contend with the reality that there's a significant gap in trust for means for journalism and, and what once was a fairly trusted institution. And I'm a believer in the best way of renewing that trust and rearticulating that trust and, and, and building it back up in particular is that data can really be an asset here. It's not just like, you know, oftentimes people will dismiss story stories and articles with like, well, you got them from anonymous sources or you got them for, or you're just making this up or things like that. And like, you know, I, you know, I, I don't, that's not really the case. And I, and I wish to correct that misunderstanding in the aggregate. But one of the best ways to do it is through data. You can you can say like, hey, I tried to I talked to a bunch of people, many of whom recorded in this piece, but I also went and figured out the number that has been independently obtained or or independently researched, and I'm going to present that number in the piece to back up my points. And I think that that is just a great way to reach people who are coming to the media with skepticism, uh, understandable skepticism at times. I don't not always understandable skepticism, but a great way to to kind of keep people on board is just kind of attempting to back up your arguments with as independent and fact-based objective numbers as you can. And obviously every single element of, of, of data is not always going to be objective or, or you know, there's there's different ways that you can torture to do different things. But I think meeting people where they are and basically saying like, I know that you don't always believe what the media says, but I have this statistic that really I, ho I hope that you see that can kind of bolster the argument here. Uh, and so just kind of numlock in general is, is a reflection of that. It's it's kind of a reflection of let's look at the news through the perspective of the hard data that they're able to bring and elevate the stories that do a really effective job of of kind of approximating that. And, uh, you know, with the book as well, I mean, obviously, you know, I don't need to I can I can sing from the heavens. My my ardent belief that that movies are, are beautiful dreams, that they are an opportunity for you to look into the soul of another. But I also bring a bunch of numbers too, just to, to try to help convince folks that these things really do have power and it's not just my my, my movie my my, uh, my cinephile uh the enjoyment uh, so, of these things that, that articulate that 
as I study what how, how life shapes people, how experiences they had shape people, and the the thing that you see over and over again, especially I guess in my field in, in the creative fields, um, you talk you hear people talk about mentors who affected their lives, whether it was a parent, um, a, a relative, uh, a teacher. I'm fascinated to know what tripped you, what what was sent you down this particular rabbit hole. Um, ha, what 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 drove you into this? I mean, I've heard your argument about how important it is and how it'll help uh, regain trust in information that's coming through the media and so on. But but what was what was that moment when you said, "Oh, I think I better do Numlock." <laughs> um, this is a really good question, and I and I've actually it dovetails very nicely with an element of the book, which is uh, I, I I had a knack for math when I was a kid. I was I was pretty good at it, and. The issue is, is that a lot of the representation of people who are good at math in the media is like Canon Egghead or or the uh, Professor Frank from The Simpsons, right? Like, you know, it, it's not necessarily a charitable stereotype. Um, and then eventually I saw a film <clears throat> called Jurassic Park in which Ian Malcolm uh, is a swashbuckling, suave, interesting, compelling mathematician who is right about Jurassic Park and is the only one who's right about Jurassic Park. And he arrived to that through like first principles and like kind of came at it very honestly. And I was like, oh, so it's not all chalk and being weird. It's, you can you can be that guy. You can be Jeff Goldblum. And uh, so that kind of reinvigorated my love for it a little bit. And so I ended up, I majored in uh, probability and statistics, applied math at William & Mary in no small part because, you know, I, I had this sensation that math, math can do very cool things. Um, and I, I kind of took it into journalism with me uh, because it was a really exciting time for data in particular. I had a very good mentor named Nate Silver who was very kind to me and, and took me in at 538 and where I worked for about five years and uh, just basically gave us the mandate of like, find cool stuff. Let's do fun stories. Let's use numbers to learn about the world and, and tell people about it. And so that, that's kind of how I came into it. But again, it, it's uh, like that idea of like mentorship is, is so compelling. Cause I think that like a thing that a film can do is like, if you are from a place where you lack that kind of mentorship or you lack that kind of role model, um, it, it can really transcend livelihoods. It can transcend countries. It can transcend borders. It can transcend class. And I think that that's just such a powerful thing about the medium where, you know, I, there, there, I, you know, came from like middle-class home in the outskirts of New York. Basically everybody in my neighborhood's dad was a cop. There was not a lot of mathematicians around uh, and having an opportunity to just kind of see, uh, you know, people do things with this that weren't uh, just from the stereotype uh, was uh, was a revelation for me. So, yeah. So um, I I want to uh, give you a minute to um, uh, promo your book because you were so generous in squeezing me into um, obviously a very busy life, judging from the speed with which you <laughs> talk. So, <laughs> but um, I um, want you to remind everybody uh, about the title of your book, um, yep. how to get it. And um, I definitely will be watching more for No Luck. I don't even know how I stumbled on it and stumbled on the reference to the book. I don't think it was in that your um, what you're putting online. I think it was in something else. So, but thank I will be you. Thank you for finding me. Yeah. Yeah, sure. The book is called You Are What You Watch. It's all about how television movies affect everything. Uh, you can get it really wherever books are sold. Uh, I always say get it at the local bookshop. You got to support the locals, but uh, right. it is available at the biggies as well, too. Uh, you can I, I have a, a URL pointing to the Hachette website 
Uh, it's just what you dot watch. If you type that into a URL bar, it'll direct you there. And they are doing a fun sale if you order through them through the holidays. Uh, I think that they see that. it as a pretty yeah. fun gift. They did, gonna, I think that I'm they gonna... see it as a, as a gift book. So uh, I'm down with that. Yeah. I really uh, um, love what you're doing. Respect it. Thank you for, for having me on. This is so fun. Thank you so much. Thank you for the, for the book and what you do. Take care. lucked out in life. She got to play the wild Tallulah Bankhead. And it probably, she's probably not as known to the, to the uh, alphabet generations, as I call them, um, as as she was for us. But I mean, she was just this amazing character that you say Tallulah, first of all, I don't know anybody else named Tallulah. Do you? (laughs) No, no, I I know a few people named named their pets. Few people right. name their pets Tallulah, a cat or a dog oh. or something, but that's about it. <laughs> I, I can see the cat. Um, but um, yeah, she she was quite a character. And Leslie Castell is an actress here in town. In um, I don't know where in our region you live, but you perform in this region. And mm-hmm. I um, live in New Orleans, Orleans Parish. There you go. Yeah. And the Jefferson uh, Performing Arts Society, which I find to be a very vigorous theater group. Um, uh, I'm, I get uh, email from them all the time on things they're doing. I always carry it because it's always fascinating. And um, and this particular performance is is the fascinating story. And um, I'm, I'm going to let you tell it. But okay. um, the performance um, has been going on since uh, earlier this month, and it, it ends this coming Sunday. So mm-hmm. if you want to go, you need to... Um, get your tickets. Uh, it's at the West Wego Cultural Center on Sala Avenue. And I don't want to forget, uh, so I'm going to mention this right at the top of the show, too. Um, if you would like a couple of free tickets to this performance, um, all you have to do is click on Cross Town Convo, C-O-N-V-O, at gmail.com. 
the first one who clicks gets two tickets free. So be sure and, and take a shot at it. All right, Leslie, tell me about um, Looped is the name yes. of it. That kind of gives you a hint because yes. we know what this means. Yes, <laughs> it's, a, it's a play. It's a, it's a three-character play written by uh, playwright Matthew Lombardo. And it was done on Broadway, hmm, I think around 2011 or 12. And it starred Valerie Harper as Tallulah Bankhead. Oh, uh, yeah. Remember her from Rhoda and the Mary Tyler Moore show. And she gave a yeah, right. phenomenal performance. But it it accounts the uh, a sort of a fictional, it, it's a real life occurrence. So uh, Tallulah Bankhead's final film was a B-movie entitled Die, Die, My Darling. And uh, it actually starred the very young Stephanie Powers also in this movie. Uh, but there was one line of dialogue that Tallulah had to go and re-record. And in the business, we call that looping. We loop over our own dialogue. And oh, we go, oh, 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 oh. Yeah, I had totally different it. idea. So it's, a, it's a real I, double I, play. I, yeah, it's a double play yeah. on the words looped because she certainly is loopy by that point in her life. And uh -huh. uh, she actually had to go and loop one line of dialogue. And it's a true story that it took her eight hours to re-record one line of dialogue. So this is playwright Mavi Lombardo's sort of uh, imagining uh, and, and jump off part of what really happened went on in the studio between her and the film editor who was tasked with the job of corralling Tallulah into pulling the drinks and the cigarettes and the drugs and the cocaine out of her hand to get her to say this one line. So Tallulah, I show up late. Point in, yeah. real, uh, in, in the original uh in, in in real life, how old was she, Tallulah Bankhead? She was sixty three years old when she did that. She died at age sixty six or seven, I think. Yeah, wore herself out, huh? Wore herself out. Emphysema, I'm pretty sure. Um, but she has a lot of life left after when she enters, and uh, it's just a very very funny funny play. Um, she espouses her philosophy on life, on dating, on drugs, on men, on women, on everything in between. Uh, and then, and then there's a, there's an unlikely, um, friendship and alliance that takes place with this very uptight man with a secret who plays the film editor and Delula, who sort of, uh, has a meeting of the minds with him during the course of the play. And, uh, it's really wonderful. I mean, it has filled with blue language and situations. So it's definitely not for the kiddies. Uh, however, you will laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. And when the show closes, I'm going to wash my mouth out with soap. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, what made you interested in this part? Why did Leslie Castell play Tallulah? So we all know Tallulah was a larger than life character. And I really enjoy just uh i enjoy playing real women so i uh had a chance to play um little edie beale uh in a production of gray gardens the musical and i really had such a fun time doing a deep dive into her characterizations and her voice and whatnot so i sort of did the same thing with t the chance to play tallulah uh you know going back to youtube's you know listening to every recording of that voice that famous grovelly voice and that laugh that she has, uh, some people, uh, the other character com um, compares it to a uh, moose moose on a mating call. So, 
<laughs> whatever that well, sounds I had like. great <laughs> time with that and her mannerisms are just so over the top you know she was she coined the phrase darling this darling that with the cigarette in her hand so uh she says in the play the reason darling uh came because she was horrible at remembering names so she just called everyone darling so there right. is always a, a bit of truth into why it happened it wasn't just pure affectation but I think after a while in her life she became this character she became known for being the out of you know this celebrity even though she was a very gifted actress underneath it all you so know. Where, where was she from what what was her um origins she was born in Huntsville Alabama to a very prominent, uh, well-to-do Republican political family connected. Her father was actually Speaker of the House uh, in wow. in Washington. Her, her father was a con longtime congressman from Alabama and became the Speaker of the House. I think there's a, a Bankhead Tunnel. I think that it's the tunnel that goes under Mobile, named the Bankhead Tunnel. So that's, that's the family wow. that she comes from. Yeah. She had an older sister. Uh, her mother died three weeks after she was born. Her mother contracted blood wow. poisoning from the birth and died three weeks later. Tallulah was christened next to her mother's open casket. So she oh, has this oh. really sort of tragic upbringing bringing and sort of homeless as her father was always in Washington. She was shuttled between aunt and aunt and cousin and cousin and sent to boarding schools and acted up and got kicked out. And, you know, so the pattern of her being a rebel started very young. She won a beauty contest. She sent a picture photo of this is like she was born in 1902. So this is going on in the teens. Right. So in the 1912, 13, 14, 15, she sends she manages to mail her a photograph of herself to a beauty contest and she won and her father allowed her to go to New York sort of just to get rid of her a little bit sends her to live at the Algonquin Hotel in New York with her aunt oh my and god the Algonquin I need uh, I need we say more right yeah. so Dorothy Parker was actually you know this is during the round table and all those folks and wow. was a wild teenager running around in between all that stuff well, for New Orleanians who don't know about the Algonquin Hotel See, what's the closest thing I can think of? Maybe the poncha train where the politicos used to yeah. have breakfast in the yeah. in the in the breakfast room there. And um it was it was just a a, a place where the celebs hung out, let's mm -hmm. put it that way. Definitely. And, uh, very, very famous and, and very kind famous. Of, again wild in and of itself. She achieved early fame on the stage, on Broadway stage, and also London. She got an opportunity to go to London, and she really was where in London where she became this celebrity because she was known for playing scandalous roles and uh, wearing scanty costumes. I think she played like a Native American dancer where she came out in basically leather and nothing else, you know. So she became a very a uh, bit of Josephine Baker. It sounds a lot like. of Josephine Baker influence for sure, for sure. As a matter of fact. Um, there is rumor that maybe she had an affair with Josephine. I don't know. She was definitely okay. openly bisexual. She that just indiscriminate sense. in her romantic uh, pursuit. Uh -huh. <laughs> that's great. That's a, that, yeah. that's, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And so, she did some film. She did some film. Uh, her, her most famous film she did, I think, was Alfred Hitchcock's Lifeboat, which she was nominated for an Academy Award for that. She's wonderful in that. If you haven't seen that movie it's just I have not, Anna, but I am noting it lifeboat yeah I rented it on Amazon this summer it was really worthwhile but later in her life in 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 like in the 1950s she was she had a radio show where she would have um celebrities of the day on and she would just 
just she was known for you never knew what she was going to say on air on the radio so it became very very popular that was before the fcc days um mm -hmm. yeah, yeah she got away with a lot i think of double entendre you know just just mm -hmm. you know saying something in heaven it mean wink wink you know something else um mm -hmm. Uh, she was a guest star on some I Love Lucy episodes, which is what I sort of remember my first experience of Tallulah. Oh, that's She's interesting. hilarious. Tallulah Bankhead comes to dinner at no, the Ricardo's house. It's hilarious. Um, and uh, she was also rumored to be the inspiration of the animated character Cruella DeVille in, <laughs> in 101 Dalmatians. So yeah. <laughs> I can yeah. definitely see the influence there. And it's funny, you know, a lot of younger generation have never heard of her, but when they see what her character was, they go, oh, now I see. She really sort of broke the mold for all these other iconic women over the top divas who came after, you know, she was the first real world celebrity, like the Paris Hilton of her day, the socialite, the bad girl socialite was just sort of known for being wild and famous, you know. So, so you lucked into this part, or um, I lucked in is probably not fair because uh, somebody knew that you could pull it off, <laughs> and you have apparently because you've gotten some rave reviews Thank from you. the first performances, and so um, we can highly recommend that people go see this. And, Thank you. Um, I want to I give a shout out to my director, Janet Shea, who is also a legendary actress in New Orleans. And uh, we've worked together several times, but this is the first time I've worked with her as a director. And she just she just guided me along the right path. And it's been a joy working with her. And my, the rest of my cast is stellar and wonderful, too. So it's been a great experience. So how long have you been in theater? And tell me about how you happened to fall into it. And mm -hmm. and I really need to understand how you make it in theater in New Orleans. We're not exactly Hollywood. No. Nor Broadway. No. And so um, you know, you really have to have kind of a, a way of making New Orleans work for you. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Precisely. So I grew up, I grew up in Laplace, actually. I'm a I'm a from the German coast, Laplace Cajun girl. Uh, stayed in New Orleans. I attended Tulane and I was a classical voice major at Tulane, but I always did musical theater and dance and always knew Broadway was my dream back then. And I moved to New York City right after graduating undergrad from Tulane and stayed in New York 20 years and just, you know, uh -huh. was the, I was the quintessential kid from nowhere with the suitcase who knew nothing, who just showed up the open calls and just through luck, hook or crook or stubbornness, you know, I've, I forged a career for myself in New York for 20 years on and off Broadway. I was in four Broadway shows and um, tons of off-Broadway national tours. So did a lot of what it takes and you, know, you have to wear many hats as an actor. I did TV commercials for many, many years when I had, when I got married and had my first child there because I didn't want to travel. I didn't want to, you know, work out of town anymore. So I became, you know, that mom opening the jar of pickles, you know, <laughs> on TV, things like that. So, uh, and then uh, my husband and I and my family, once I had my second baby, we decided to make a change in life and move back to New Orleans. I always loved it. I wanted to be closer to family. I wanted my children to grow up here. So we moved back right before Hurricane Katrina. Um, How many yeah. times have I heard somebody say, we right. like just before Katrina? It is so 
bizarre. Always had good timing in my career, right? Uh, But we were lucky. We didn't lose anything. We were a sliver by the river. So, you know, extremely lucky. And, And we just stayed and raised our children here. Both my kids are now in college and out of the house and I'm still here. And I didn't think I would be doing theater when I moved back to New Orleans. My husband and I opened a wine business. My husband's a, a certified sommelier and a wine educator. Oh, that's where your email comes from. Yeah, wine <laughs> school. It's it's yeah. uh, the bar is called Wino on Chapatulis. It's a wine tasting bar. And we have a retail shop in the Place St. Charles uh, office building downtown oh. off of uh, Canal Street. So that's been our main bread and butter, you know, tuition Uh and, you know, raising kids and whatnot. And theater has just been this lovely labor of love for me every time I would find projects to do. And lo and behold, there's a great film and TV, you know, uh, scene happening here now, which I wasn't. I know. And and it was, of course, as we all know, it was off uh, for a while, but um, now we're back. Has it been voted by the uh, union yet? I mean, getting uh, ready to ratify it right now right so it's gonna happen and then uh and then there's gonna be this incredibly wild crush i don't know how people are gonna handle the logistics of i know know, starting to work on all the productions that were put Uh off i'm a i'm a recurring character in i'm a recurring character in the amc uh mayfair witches the based on the ann rice uh the witching hour so i have three or four episodes in that season one so i'm hoping to be back my character is not dead at the end of season one so i'm hoping to come back in season two i play alicia mayfair one of the mayfairs so uh so we'll see what happens with that but i've been lucky in film and tv too you know working down here as well which has been a real blessing so it's yeah been that's real- that's been a huge change i mean when i you know, first um i was in television news and, and when i first left television news and and uh, built a public relations firm I was very frustrated that we did not um, seem to have grown anything to speak of in terms of film and, and television mm-hmm. um, and and tried to get some things started working. I was working with Mark Morial's office and um, set up the mayor's office of tourism, arts and entertainment, which became the cultural economy office. Mm-hmm. And um, we were just, you know, uh, lamenting the lack of. And then people like Susan Brennan and and Sydney Torres come along and and right. you know they build the second line stages and the ranch and and other productions and and that's very important too because not only did we become a location uh, uh, draw mm-hmm. which we started out being of course mm-hmm. because we have so much historical you know. Uh, mm-hmm natural and mm-hmm. unique and sexy and wonderful environment. But in, in addition, we um, really did have uh, a growing um, crews on the ground, which is what Carol Morton uh, explained to me. Carol runs yeah. the film office. So um, so that's the, made a huge difference. And Oh, it's unbelievable. A lot of projects that I've done aren't set in New Orleans, but I'm filming them in New Orleans. You know, um, I did a whole series for USA Network, that we filmed at at NIM Studios out in Elmwood called Common Law for USA Network. And it was set in LA, <laughs> but wow. we were shooting parts of it New Orleans was, look like downtown uh, Los Angeles. If you go on Poyges Street, those high rises look like they could be in downtown Los Angeles. So you have that too. So there's a big wealth of uh, location opportunities and things too. 
I had yeah. no idea that uh, that um, you could you could shoot Los Angeles and New Orleans. I thought That's it was amazing. Really our older environments. Yeah, we would have to uh, stop every now and then when a streetcar would go by for the sound of the streetcar because that couldn't be in the shot, right? <laughs> right, right. Oh, that's funny. So, um, what's your next production? You know what? I'm not sure right now. Uh, I'm just, I was so busy right before Looped happened. I was directing. I also work as a director now because once again, we have to wear many hats. hats I directed uh, the production of Young Frankenstein, the musical for J-Pass for their main stage on uh, the big theater, the Performing Arts Center on Airline Highway. And that was a terrific production. I had uh, a wonderful cast and crew and full orchestra. So Dennis Asaf was been very supportive of me allowing me to flex my flex my muscles as a director as well as an actor so um it's been great so now i'm looking forward to a little bit of a rest taking off for the holidays seeing what happens with the film as we cook up and um i also teach at noca uh so oh, during the day, i teach i teach um with the musical theater. House, as you said yeah with the, the mus yeah. musical theater kids uh, and I love them. They're the next generation of Broadway stars. So that's extremely fulfilling to be able to pass what I learned when my 20 years in New York from the mentors that I had through me to them, you know, and hopefully they'll pass it on because theater is just such a, you know, it's an oral and a tradition that you pass on through in person. Can't really write it in a book. You have to do it, you know. Right, right. Um, so, so how do you see the future? I mean, uh, re regardless of this moment in time that we'll have for a while, where we'll have this crush of productions uh, to catch up. Uh, but um, going into the strike, we were, according to Carol, uh, the fourth largest um, filming, uh, video, streaming, whatever um, site in the country. Mm -hmm. um, so really growing from our our start. Uh, not that long ago, and um, so I'm really curious. How, how do you see, um, how do you see the growth trend for the city, um, or um, I should say, either in, in terms of quantifying it or um, characterizing it? Either way. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think as long as we have the film and tax credit tax credits, uh, the film and TV tax credits in place uh you know and i know they were sort of adjusted they went away for a while and then a lot of film projects packed up and went to atlanta so we lost a lot of projects and, to not, and that had a, a permanent effect as well yeah they did they have a huge infrastructure there now but but we're catching up um so hopefully i think you know like you said with second line with susan brennan sydney torres and the ranch and all these places and i think there are a couple of other studios hitting up and stuff and production companies um the infrastructure is happening so the talent pool of crew and it, it they're becoming more trained so they're becoming seasoned a lot of people from LA came to New Orleans to work and the the quality of life is just they say so much better here than there that as long as they can have their projects lined up you know the the, the um you know the talent pool will stay which is wonderful, which is great. So much more fun driving down St. Charles Avenue or St. Claude Avenue um, uh, rather than the freeways. And, yeah. and right now their freeway is partially shut down Oof. out there because of that weird fire that they had. Um, oh, so awful. things happen uh, out there too. I mean, we we have our share of uh, uh, challenges environmentally, but uh, uh, they're having those uh, out there as well. That's true. Um, so you think that we're going to grow, basically? I, think, I absolutely do. Absolutely. 
Yeah, absolutely. So. And um, and I'm I'm going to be curious to see what your next production is. But back to Loops for a minute. Um, so let's give me a, a a little bit of an understanding of the schedule because I know it's this weekend. Mm-hmm. It's the last mm-hmm. weekend, but give me some little bit more times. And no, it's this days. Thursday. It's Thursday, Friday, Saturday evening at seven thirty. Seven thirty curtain. The play is short. It it runs uh, ninety minutes including a little short 10 minute intermission. And uh, we have a Sunday matinee at 2 p.m. Uh, so there's a 2 p.m. Oh, okay, so you have four performances this we weekend. We have four performances, oh. yeah. Yeah, it, I know, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. So I hope people come out and and see it, enjoy it. They've, they've transformed the lobby of the space with signature cocktails and we have fun photo booths. So you could dress as Tallulah and take your picture and you could put your star on the floor. And it's, you know, Amy, our PR person has just done a great job with, with these, making it a these, whole immersive these, fun evening. He's strong. I mean, I, I really, you know, uh, uh, it's after doing PR for 40 years to be on the other end of it, you know, getting the, uh, the emails and calls. I'm impressed with her. She, she does her job and, and then some, so Me yeah, yeah. Um, that's why you're on the, you're on the air right now. Thank <laughs> you so much for having us. I appreciate it. Yeah. Sure it's just spreading the word. You know, there's so many different avenues of, uh, of, of information where you can get it now. So it, it's, it's hard. We have to kind of hit every, everything to get the word out so i appreciate no, i'm not surprised at all to learn that Tallulah bankhead is from the south mm-hmm. and so i think a, a people can go to this production and kind of be prepared to to see people kind of like they've grown up with here oh, please. Right? and if you're, fan of Tenn- if you're a fan of tennessee williams she was also fun fact she was the inspiration for the character of Blanche Dubois. So Tennessee Williams uh, wrote the piece with her in mind and offered her the role initially, and she turned it down. Oh, my God. So it's a big regret in her life. So she does talk okay. about that a lot in the play a little bit. That's a uh, real sticky point to her that she, you know, watched Jessica Tandy become a star and all that. Yeah, that happened. She also tested for the role of uh, Scarlett O'Hara. But she was sort of in her early 30s by that time. So I think she was just on a little too old range to do it. But she was, you know, she talks in her autobiography of being very perfect for it. But, you know, it just didn't work out. (laughs) We had a Brit do it. (laughs) Uh She did a good job. Um, So I just want to remind everybody that uh, if you... um, uh, have it already. You Who knows if nobody's done it already. Maybe you can still do it. If you click... On, uh, if you send an email rather to Crosstown Convo, C O N V O, and Crosstown, C R O S S T O W N, Convo at gmail.com. If you just happen to be the first one to do that, you get a couple free tickets to this magnificent Terrific. Well, you have a ball, Leslie. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed meeting you. And uh, stay in touch. Let me know what you're doing. I and, will. Uh, Thank you so much. So wonderful to talk. Have you on again? Thank you so much. Take care. Uh, This is Gene Nathan for Crosstown Conversations. Tune in next week, too.